Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald Scotland, Wednesday 21st of April 2021. Alba Manifesto Launch. Alex Salmon aims to silence cheating claims by Tom Gordon, Scottish political editor. Alex Salmon will today launch the first manifesto for his list-only Alba party, citing a new poll which shows voters don't believe it is cheating the Holyrood system. The former First Minister will also insist his plans for immediate independence negotiations with London after the election is not a distraction from the economic recovery, but integral to it. He will say, independence is not an alternative to recovery, it is an essential to real recovery. We simply can't wait several years for a referendum and several more for independence. Mr Salmon's party is aiming to create a supermajority of yes MSPs at Holyrood, a number he has yet to define, in order to keep pressure on Boris Johnson to grant a second independence referendum or legitimise other, more controversial options if he refuses. Alba last night released a single finding from a panel-based poll which asked voters if it was cheating for multiple pro-independence parties to stand for Holyrood on the list or whether it should be up to voters to decide who to vote for. Three quarters said it should be up to voters, with a quarter regarding it as cheating. However, the question also said, many other parties in Scotland will contest only seats on the regional list, something that is not true of any other party currently at Holyrood. Mr Salmon is expected to say, if Scotland wants to have all the powers required to recover from the coronavirus in a way we choose, we simply can't wait several years for a referendum and several more for independence. That would mean that the crucial decisions that need to be made right now will be made by Boris Johnson, not the people of Scotland. It means that weapons of mass destruction will be renewed on the Clyde instead of that money being spent on the infrastructure projects Scotland is crying out to be renewed. And it means that if we want to mobilise capital to transform Scotland's recovery, we will be stimmied by Westminster. Only by delivering a supermajority for independence will we be able to hold Boris Johnson's feet to the fire and progress our independence with the urgency that is required. A supermajority will lead to super recovery. Under the Holyrood list system, Alba would need around 6% of the vote to get MSPs elected. Meanwhile, former SNP MP Tasmina Ahmed Sikh, now the top-ranked candidate for Alba in Central Scotland, has accused the Scottish Greens of actively working against the independence cause by standing in a dozen constituencies. She said the Greens could help unionists win by taking votes from the NSP, as in Edinburgh Central in 2016, when the Greens got 4,644 votes and then the Tory leader, Ruth Davidson, beat the NSP by 610. The Greens said Alba might want to get a record of delivery and some policies before claiming to understand the voting public. 
The Herald Scotland, Wednesday 21st of April 2021 COVID Scotland One in ten Scots student paramedics have considered suicide over financial woes by Martin Williams, senior news reporter. One in ten student paramedics in Scotland who have been in the front line of the coronavirus pandemic have considered suicide because of their deteriorating financial position. A study of 200 paramedic students across Scotland found that 8 in 10 are worried they are going to burn out and are struggling to make ends meet between pay periods. And over half, 57%, say they have considered quitting their courses because of their finances. Hundreds of student frontline paramedics have been pushing since September last year for a bursary equal to the 11,000 nurses and midwives in Scotland get, saying there is a lack of financial support. But they say there has been no intervention, despite working full-time with the ambulance service, on placement during the pandemic. It meant many have had to take second jobs and others live below the poverty line. The Pay Student Paramedics Group said that the lack of action has caused a further decline in the financial and mental well-being of many of those on the course and has made an already critical situation reach crisis as 95% are concerned their money will not last long. The Pay Student Paramedics Group say that while the SNP have pledged to introduce a bursary as part of its parliamentary manifesto, the proposal is not concrete and does not discuss amounts or timescales. They say that the bursary needs to be brought in before September 2021, when the next academic year starts. The group says the reality for most student paramedics is that they receive no bursary of any kind and take on an average loan of £5,500 a year. This means living on £480 to £540 a month, which for most only covers their rent. The group says that this is far below the average of £7,702 received by someone on universal credit in the UK. Campaigners say there remains no support for paramedics in Scotland despite having been working full-time with the ambulance service on placement during the pandemic. The research, which took responses from all five universities that provide the BSc Paramedic Science course, including Glasgow Caledonian University and Queen Margaret University, found that 95% were concerned that their money will not last long. A pay student paramedics group spokesman said a lack of government action since September has caused a further decline in the financial and mental well-being of many of those on the course. He said this has made an already critical situation reach crisis as 95% of respondents are concerned their money will not last long. It is important paramedic students receive appropriate financial support from the Scottish Government so that they can focus on their studies and placements without worrying if they'd be able to go home to food on the table and a roof over their head, he said. Rory McLean, a first-year student paramedic at Glasgow Caledonian University, said This year, under the pandemic, has been made so much harder by not having a bursary. I have only got £200 a month after rent. It's affected my studying and my mental health to the extent where I've had to get therapy to help with the anxiety. In January last year, it emerged that Scotland's ambulance service was battling a staff crisis amid evidence that it failed to cover more than 42,000 shifts. The disclosure, made under the Freedom of Information legislation, provoked anger from opposition politicians who claimed the service was underfunded with a potential impact on public safety. The Scottish Conservatives asked the ambulance service to disclose how many shifts were rostered and filled in each of the last three years. 
In 2016-17, of 335,168 shifts, 322,054 were filled, with a shortfall of 13,114. In 2017-18, the shortfall was 16,134, and last year it was 13,568. In January last year, paramedic students in England and Wales, along with radiographers and physiotherapists, were amongst those receiving £500,000 a year maintenance grant from the UK government from September. Extra payments worth up to £3,000 per academic year will be available for eligible students. A group spokesman said, The Scottish Government have pledged to train many more paramedics in Scotland to fill the shortage and cover the missing hours. This may not be possible, though, with so many considering leaving the profession before they have even started from a lack of financial support. With so many paramedic students calling for help, can the Scottish Government really continue to ignore and delay putting in place a bursary, if not for the many students who are struggling, for the general public who will be affected if there is a vast decrease in not only the number of those partaking in the course, but the diversity of the background of those becoming Scotland's future paramedics? One student told the researchers, I left full-time employment with the Scottish Ambulance Service to do the BSc course. I had increasing worries and anxiety about money that has impacted my mental health. I have had suicidal thoughts at points during the course when coursework, practical classes, placement and having to work to pay my mortgage became too much. Another said it makes me constantly anxious as I worry about money all the time. My relationship with my partner is under immense strain because of this anxiety as I fear that I'm holding them back in life due to having no money. I feel guilty about having to spend money to eat so sometimes I go without meals to save money and then feel ill afterwards. I always feel nauseous as I'm always worrying about having no money. An SNP spokesman said, If re-elected as Scotland's government, we will work with the student awards body to implement the paramedic bursary as quickly as is practical. The Scottish Ambulance Service was approached for comment. This article was written by Martin Williams, Senior News Reporter. Recorded from the Herald on the 29th of April 2021. From the Sports section, Hamilton boss Brian Rice hit with ban over referee outburst by Aidan Smith. Hamilton boss Brian Rice has been banned from the dugout for the club's next two matches following an SFA disciplinary hearing. Rice was hit with two charges after his furious tirade against the SFA's head of referees Crawford Allen. The former Hibernian, Nottingham Forest and Falkirk player has received a four-match ban, two games of which are suspended until the end of 2021. The punishment means he will be in the stand for the Scottish Premiership Bottom Club's trip to St Mirren on Saturday and the clash with relegation rivals Kilmarnock at Rugby Park on May 12th. The Aki's head coach found himself in trouble over comments made in the wake of his side's Scottish Cup defeat to St Mirren on April 3rd. The 57-year-old was accused of breaching rules which prohibit bosses criticising match officials in a way which indicates bias or incompetence or impinge on his character. He was also charged over his failure to act in his best interests of football by using insulting words. Rice angrily let rip SFA heads of referees Allen after seeing Saints awarded a late penalty in their 3-0 cup defeat saying, I'm angry as we are getting nothing. I'm fed up phoning Crawford Allen and getting shoved to the side because we are only Hamilton, 
that's what's happening. Am I paranoid? I would like Crawford to take us seriously, to give us fair crack of the whip, just like everybody else, because we are not getting a fair crack of the whip. I don't care what anyone says. That article was by Aidan Smith. From the Herald Scotland, dated Thursday, 29th April 2021. From the Voices section. Douglas Ross's comments on gay marriage really shouldn't surprise anyone. An article by Mark Smith, feature writer. Some quick first impressions of the Channel 4 election debate. Nicola Sturgeon. She's fed up, isn't she? Tired. How long will she stay after the election? Anna Sawa. Nice guy, good ideas. Better people listening. Willie Rennie. Nice guy, good ideas. Better people listening. Patrick Harvey. Is he capable of showing any human empathy, I wonder? For the people who work in the oil and gas industry, for example. And Douglas Ross. Oh dear, it's the age-old problem with the gays, isn't it? What seems to have happened in Mr Ross's case is that, in 2014, he said he would have voted against gay marriage, a fact which he confirmed in the debate. Quote, I said at the time I would have voted against it. Just like two of Nicola Sturgeon's ministers voted against it. I have also said that I fully support it. I think marriage is a thing of beauty for both men and women and people of same sex and it's something we should support. Unquote. Mr Sarwar immediately sought to suggest the comments were part of a bigger problem. Referring to the Tory leader's remark in 2017 that he wanted tougher enforcement against gypsy travellers, Mr Sarwar said the cuddly Tories under Ruth Davison were long gone. Quote, Not only is Douglas talking about same-sex marriage, he's had to apologise for hateful views against other minority communities. We're back to the same old Tories. Unquote. But we shouldn't really be surprised by Mr Ross's comments, should we? Personally, I'm bewildered by people who oppose gay marriage, especially conservatives who value state institutions. But Mr Ross was born just three years after homosexuality was legalised in Scotland and grew up in the 80s and 90s when Scotland, and Aberdeenshire in particular, were still pretty conservative places. You'll remember the Keep the Clause campaign, which opposed the repeal of Section 28. You may also remember that one million Scots voted in support of the campaign. One million. The truth here is that Scotland has always lagged behind on LGBT rights, and still does, partly because of its religious history, and partly because our socially conservative streak runs through the left as well as the right. England and Wales decriminalised homosexuality in the 60s, but it took Scotland until the 80s to do the same, under a Tory government, interestingly. It was also behind England on the legalisation of gay marriage. And still, even now, we lag behind. Denmark, Malta, Norway, Iceland, Portugal, Ireland. 
all of them and more have led the way on LGBT legislation and allow their citizens to identify their own gender. Scotland, however, still has not introduced a change. Mainly, possibly entirely, because of anti-progressives within the nationalist movement. The only question is where they're lurking now. The recent comments on age of consent by one of Alba's candidates suggest it may be in Alex Salmond's party, but most of the prominent nationalist figures who oppose reform on LGBT rights still belong to the SNP. Social conservatism is everywhere, basically. Tory, SNP, right-wing, left-wing, yes supporter, no supporter. Scotland is more conservative than you think. As for the Conservatives in particular, we should be under no illusions about them. As Anna Sawa suggested, for a time under Ruth Davidson, some people thought the Tories were changing. But some interesting analysis this week by the researcher Alex Scholes for What Scotland Thinks suggests it may be working the other way. Analysing data from the Scottish Attitudes Survey, What Mr Scholes found was that before 2014, there was little sign of a relationship between liberal views and support for independence and the parties. But seven years on, people with liberal views are more likely than those with conservative views to support yes, probably because of Brexit. Social conservatives have also become more likely to support the Tories. But we're not talking massive differences here. Mr Scholes found that more than 40% of people with authoritarian or socially conservative views support independence. The good news in the end, I suppose, is that, however strong the conservative streak still is in Scotland, we appear to be getting better. On gay marriage, opinions have mellowed and a majority of Scots support it. It's also a good sign that Mr Ross appears to have altered his view. Having grown up in Aberdeenshire in the 80s myself, I understand why Mr Ross may have ended up with the opinions he once held. All I can say to him now is, thank goodness he realises he was wrong. Thank goodness he's changed his mind. This article was by Mark Smith, feature writer. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 28th of April 2021, Arts and Entertainments. John Byrne on Jerry Rafferty, Paisley and why he's still working at 81 years old by Brian Beacom, Senior Features Writer. John Byrne has zoomed into the room and the first impression is the artist-stroke writer certainly hasn't surrendered to the sartorial ordinariness of a man born at the beginning of the Blitz. His traditional two-tone jacket, the loush silver scarf on neck still suggests a retired rock star or a mid-20th century dandy. Byrne, thank goodness, still loves to dress to the tens. What's missing, however, is the almost omnipresent roll-up which dangled from his lips like a limp, recently hanged man, and the Frank Zappa comb-back dark hair is now a soft silver shading. As is his goatee, yet still Byrne looks commanding, defiant, like a subject in search of an artist, a task he has often taken upon himself. However, a bigger question, beyond appearances, presents itself. Has the 81-year-old Paisley-born polymath slowed down to the pace of an ordinary mortal? Can the writer of some 30 plays and screenplays, among them theatre classics such as The Slab Boys, still cut a rug in terms of his writing and painting? It seems Byrne refuses to slow down, 
Today he has beamed into my living room talk about his new play, Tennis Elbow. It's a follow-up to his first play, Writer's Cramp, first staged in 1977 at the Edinburgh Festival. Writer's Cramp told of the life and times of F.S. McDade, an aspiring writer and artist, brackets yes, a partly autobiographical tale, close brackets, a play which employed Burns' characteristic stylization. Alliteration is splattered in the way Jackson Pollock used paint, lashings of heavily stylized wordplay. F.S. gets his schoolboy taste of T.S. Eliot before it's off to Magdalen College, where Daders is Mooners over Anners, but Anners is Preggers after dallying with Dickers at Twickers. Tennis Elbow again returns to the world of tortured, stunted artists, but this time it features the distaff side of the story. In a series of flashbacks, we learn of McDade's wife, Pamela Crichton Capers, a mischievous, lost artist, as she tries to make her way in the world, working as journalist and a model for gents' pullovers before applying to the galleries. Burn, we learn, hasn't lost his capacity for punchy one-liners. The dirty Nazi spun you a fanny and you fell for it, and again he bursts the bubble of pomposity. Brackets, McDade revealed he once painted George the Baptist on the inside of the kettle. Close brackets. I love to do that, says the writer with a mischievous smile. I really hate pretentiousness, and I love to explore the human condition. I really want to work out why we're all here in this earth. He chuckles, I haven't come to a conclusion yet. John Byrne's voice may be softer, quieter these days, but his talent is still loud, his wordplay clever, featuring sentences longer than a murderer would receive, and he still loves the surreal. At one point in Tennis Elbow, the lead character begins to sing the 1970s pop song Vincent, but with a new refrain. Oh Pamela, whatever did he do to you? Why did you choose that particular song, John? Is it an homage to the artist? Who wrote it again, Burnass? His memory not quite recalling the songwriter. Ah yes, Don McLean. I had to write this as a sort of apology because I didn't get what the song was about at first, even though he sings of Vincent. He spells it out. That's sort of an answer, I guess. But what's clear in chatting to Byrne is that lockdown hasn't altered his life. In terms of his commitment to work, he still writes or paints in his converted garden studio every day because he feels compelled to do so. I do need to write, he says softly. I write in a way that is English, but not in English, he adds. I hope others will enjoy it, but the truth is, I write for myself. Byrne loves honing, reshaping, chipping away, searching for exactly the right word. The playwright legend Moss Hart said, There is no writing, only rewriting. He was right. I love that process of making the words, the language better. John Byrne is also a, brackets, one-fingered, close brackets, writing purist. I think using laptops and cutting and pasting is not really writing, he maintains. The creation of a good play needs a typewriter. You have to be able to feel the imprint on the paper. Fair enough, John. What's a little hard to accept, however, is Burns' contention is that he writes for himself, not an audience. He says that when coming up with writer's cramp, he would chuckle away to himself, just as he did when he scribbled in jotters at the age of 12. We spoof anecdotes from the local papers. It was all the entertainment I ever needed, which suggests a man happy with the conversations in his own head. He adds, and I don't paint because people will like it, either. I paint because I enjoy it. He suddenly trips back in time to talk of his first gallery showing. It was a red-letter day for me. As a naive painter, I sent something off to the Portal Gallery in Grafton Street, brackets, claiming it to be painted by his father Patrick, close brackets. He adds, an, a slight non-sequitur. My father, who was a busker, took up drawing and he drew like a three-year-old, and he sold papers at Great Paisley Cross when he retired. 
However, the Portal Gallery tale reinforces the argument he needs his work to be seen and heard. It ties in with a tale he once told about calling the famous London agent Peggy Ramsey. In 1977, I phoned her back to tell her about writer's cramp. She said, send it to me. In two weeks, I'm going on holiday. I expect you to have written another play by the time I get back. Then she put the phone down. I'd written the slab boys by the time she was back, so I rang her up again and said, hello, Ms. Ramsey. I've written a play, and unlike writer's cramp, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. She said, how F star 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 bourgeois darling, send it to me, and put the phone down. It's a great memory, but during conversation, John Burns' fast, once incisive mind takes a little longer to open that particular trunk. Some questions go unanswered. For example, one of the central themes in both Cramp and Elbow is legitimacy. He continually asks who we really are. Does his desire to delve into the subject stem from his own genealogy experience, perhaps? Brackets, in 2002, Burns discovered his biological father was his grandfather. Close brackets. Burn doesn't answer, but then Zoom's sound isn't always great and perhaps his hearing is heading the way of his eyesight. I'm half blind, he offers. I can only see black and white in my right eye. I'm virtually blind, so I've had to change my style, so my painting is nothing like work I've done before. He adds in soft voice, I just can't be idle. Only my eyes can stop me working. John Byrne may not ping-pong answers the back these days, but there's a real warmth about the man which emerges, particularly when revisiting the past. Tennis elbow involved time travel back to the Paisley of his youth. The play references place names, schools, the plunge pool and story street baths. We're both in happy common ground here because we attended the same school, St Mirren's Academy, and discovered we actually had the same headmaster. He had previously worked in the Kibble School, brackets a borstal, close brackets, Burns said, and he battered me and my brother Jim. St Mirren's was a tough school, brackets in terms of discipline, close brackets, of gowns and mortar boards, of leather belts that were so stiff they stood upright when he held in hand. Was he belted often? I got the belt for carrying on in class, for being too much of a comic, he says, smiling. But at least my artistic talent was recognised by the art mistress, Mrs Keane. I remember doing a watercolour, cowboys round a campfire, and it was quite a mature for an 11 year old. But then my mother said, I had been doing drawings in my pram since I was a one-year-old. And his writing talent? Did his school pick up in that? Yes, it did. I remember a composition I wrote about building a model boat, and it was very detailed and I got high marks for it. What's striking is that John Byrne never, even for a second, looks back in anger. His school was a great encourager, he says. He talks warmly of former pupils who became friends, such as Elton John's former manager John Reed and music legend Jerry Rafferty and he becomes animated, joyous when he talks of Fergusley Park, the Paisley housing scheme in which he grew up. Yet it wasn't an area that bred success. No, it was once described as the worst slum in Europe, he says, with a defiant grin, before adding a full-blown laugh. I was very proud of that. So he didn't see a glass ceiling above his head? No, he says emphatically. I had no idea there was something there preventing me doing what I wanted to do. I got all the adulation and colour I could ever have wanted from Fergusley Park, and I'm eternally thankful for all of that. All too often, people look to their past as an explanation for their failures, their disappointments to come. John Byrne may have grown up in a poor housing scheme, but that never stopped him applying for Glasgow Art School after a stint in a carpet factory mixing paints. I was lucky, he insists, of his upbringing, despite his mother being an abused schizophrenic. And although my mother left school aged 11, she would travel into Gilmer Street Art Shop and buy paint brushes for me. 
The shop was run by a man named Mr Brown, who wore a bonnet and a three-piece suit, and she would show him my drawings. After he saw them, he went into the back shop and got sable brushes for me, and said, this is what the boy deserves, and added, burn pauses to remember. Sorry, my language is gone, but that experience was so encouraging for me, and what I'd say to young people today is the only thing that can hold you back is yourself. Life experience, Burn would suggest, was not to be denied. It was to be recaptured, to be drawn, to be written about. The Slab Boys series was, of course, based on his experiences in Stoddard's Carpet Factory, a play which transcended all expectations when staged in New York, starring Sean Penn, Val Kilmer and Kevin Bacon. Later in conversation, he remembers Kilmer turning up at a London theatre in which Byrne was set designing. You can hear in his voice how happy he was to see the American actor once again. That's not to say John Byrne's relationship with actors has always been smooth. Not only would he write plays and TV comedy drama such as Tutti Fruity and Your Cheating Heart, he would paint the ad posters, design the set, insist on final casting rights, final edits. Nowadays he would be described as a control freak, or to use the medical term, an obsessive compulsive. I always make sure the casting and the stage are right. I can be a pain in the arse to everybody, but I have to get it right. But did he go too far? The late Freddie Bordley once recalled that during the rehearsals of the Slab Boys, his character had to take a slap in the arm and shout, Aya! But Byrne, he said, gave him a roasting because he yelled, Oya! Instead, does he recognise this as a typical of the demands he placed in the talent? Freddie was wonderful, he says, smiling. Always early, always brilliant. He was a bit of a rascal with the actresses, though. But you're not quite answering the question, John. If I get it right, I hope that this will translate to an audience. Byrne could write fast in those days. Now he says he struggles to read more than a couple of pages at a time of the biographies he loves. Brackets, he's currently on Cary Grant. Close brackets. So why, at the age of autumnal relaxation, would Byrne want to put himself through the often tortuous demands of writing and rewriting a play? Well, he needs to work, he says. But he had to go back to Paisley, and it transpires he's made the trip back to his hometown yet again, having come up with another new play, Underwood Lane, based in the early life of his pop star chum, Jerry Rafferty. It was due to be staged this summer at the Tron Theatre in Glasgow, but Covid has kicked it on to next year. You can tell he had fun with the writing. The winter sun hangs like a separating boil glued to a giant sheet of dirty asbestos above the blackened tenements that rear up from the cobbled streets like a row of broken teeth. Byrne agrees it was a real labour of love. I knew Jerry's brother Jim when I worked at Stoddart's. Jim borrowed my three-string ten shillings banjo, which we'd hid behind a coat in the slab room. He said, my young brother wants to learn songs from the hip parade, and that was how Jerry started. He misses his friend. I was able to go and see him in Gloucester just two days before he died, and we laughed and had a great conversation. I'm so glad I had the chance. We talk of loss, of time whooshing past, of his chum Billy Connolly's move to Florida Keys. He says he can't believe it's 44 years since his writer's cramps stormed the Fringe Festival, but he's strongly accepting of mortality. Is it faith? Yes, I was at Mass yesterday. It gives me strength. He smiles. I've long been a believer in St Jude, the patron saint of lost causes. I tell him I've never seen John Byrne as a lost cause. He's always been a cause, he laughs. But it's true. He was always forging ahead, iconoclastic. His painting and writing are always looking for answers. And so, what if he doesn't offer answers to all the questions these days? He's still writing, still painting, still game. I like to think so, he says, chuckling. Life and times. 
Byrne married Alice Simpson in April 1964, with whom he had two children. They divorced in 2014. He and actress Tilda Swinton were in a relationship from around 1989 to 2003. They have two children, twins born in 1997. The couple split and Byrne married theatrical lighting specialist Janine Davies in 2014. They live in Edinburgh. By Brian Beacom. The Herald, Tuesday the 27th of April 2021. News. Edinburgh Council to spend millions filling potholes and improving social care. This article is by David Ball. Council leaders in Edinburgh have set out proposals to invest an extra £8.5 million into public services, with plans drawn up to support social care and repair potholes. The city's SNP Labour Minority Coalition will bring forward the plans for approval next month. Edinburgh Conservatives have labelled the announcement too little too late and accused the coalition of a cynical attempt so close to the election to influence the public. The proposals include an extra £2.5 million to help support social care services and £6 million to improve roads and pavements, including £2 million to repair potholes and £4 million to resurface roads and pavements. Last week, the council leadership announced £450,000 plans to open temporary public toilets across the capital, including at the Meadows and Portobello, after a spate of antisocial behaviour. The council has previously closed a host of public toilets. The council administration's budget, which was approved in February, committed to investigating additional spending to deal with the winter impact on roads and provide extra investment for health, and social care once the Scottish and UK budgets had been passed and funding deals finalised. Discussions will take place with opposition parties over any further investment with a report drawn up by officials for the Authorities Finance and Resources Committee on May the 20th. SNP Council Leader Adam McVeigh said This winter weather has had a major impact on the surface of our roads, so we're proposing to spend £6 million on roads and pavements, in addition to our existing £100 million road investment programme. We've been listening carefully to what our residents are telling us and prioritising their local needs. We hope they will see a real difference from this investment and everyone will benefit from an improved condition, particularly vulnerable road users and pedestrians. He added, we'll have further cross-party discussions in the coming days and weeks to inform the council's spending plans, which will be approved in May. We're determined to make sure additional investments benefit the people of Edinburgh now, who have shown enormous perseverance through the pandemic while helping us build the future capital city our residents want. Ian White, Conservative Group Leader at the City Council, warned over a lack of detailed plans he claimed could put the funding at risk of being wasted. He said, As with most things from this SNP Labour-run council, this announcement is too little too late. 
also without a real plan to implement change, it runs the risk of being wasted spending. The Conservative budget we presented back in February proposed extra funding for road and pavement repairs and health and social care. Importantly, it tied that funding to action to transform the services, getting more value for money on pothole repairs and new and efficient ways of working on social care. Mr White added the funding for public toilets is welcome, but won't be enough for all the sites involved and needs to be backed up with a plan to enforce park rules and ensure more is done in partnership with the police on anti-social behaviour. We called for this last summer and the SNP still haven't caught up showing they really don't understand the needs to make our parks safe and pleasant places for everyone as we approach a summer where most social interaction will still be outdoors. Mr White also accused council leaders of ignoring election rules. He said what's probably most worrying is the timing of this announcement so close to an election suggesting a cynical attempt by the SNP Council to influence the public. It begs serious questions when it was the SNP who suggested earlier in the year that they wanted to limit democracy by curtailing the number of council meetings during the parliamentary PERDA period. Now the election is here, they are ignoring PERDA and making major announcements without any advance reference to committee or public scrutiny. This article is by David Ball. The Herald, Tuesday the 27th of April 2021. News. Scottish election. SNP fails to gain a majority and eight seats for Alaba. Poll. By Jodie Harrison. A new poll has predicted that the SNP will fail to gain a majority in the Scottish Parliament in May and that the Alaba party will capture almost 10 seats. The panel-based survey predicts that Nicola Sturgeon's party will finish on 61 seats, the same number they have now, and seven short of gaining absolute control of Holyrood. Alex Salmond is forecast to have a dramatic return to politics commanding an eight-strong group which would see Alaba leapfrog the Scottish Liberal Democrats, who are predicted to lose seats and become the smallest party in the chamber. The Scottish Greens would also pick up MSPs, forming a group of 11. This means the supermajority for independence sought by Mr Salmond would become a reality, but with the former First Minister having considerable influence and how any plans played out. The survey did not paint a pretty picture for the Unionist parties, with the Scottish Conservatives and Labour also losing seats. Panelbase interviewed a representative sample of 1,075 adults in Scotland, including 16 and 17-year-olds, from the 21st to the 26th of April for the Scott Goes Pop website. Based on their answers, the website predicted the next Scottish Parliament would be made up of 61 SNP MSPs, down 2 from 2016, 24 Conservatives, down 7, 20 Labour, down 4, 11 Greens, an increase of 5, 
eight for Alaba and five for the Liberal Democrats. Panel base estimated that the SNP would gain 45% of the constituency vote, Labour 22%, the Conservatives 20%, the Lib Dems 8% and the Greens 4%. In the regional list ballot, the SNP were predicted to receive 36%, the Conservatives 21%, Labour 18%, Greens 10%, Alaba 6%, the Liberal Democrats 6% and George Galloway's All for Unity party 2%. Earlier this week, a poll by Servation for the Sunday Post predicted that the SNP is on course to win a five-seat majority at Holyrood, with the Scottish Greens the biggest threat of denying Nicola Sturgeon's party total control. Alex Salmond was found to be less popular than Boris Johnson, while Alaba were not forecast to return an MSP. Scott Goes Pop author James Kelly wrote, The big story is Alaba's showing on the list. This is the third panel-based poll in succession to show the new pro-independence party on 6%, but in this case, the seat's projection is even more favourable than before, with Alex Salmond on course to lead an eight-strong group at Holyrood, bigger than the Greens and Liberal Democrats had in the previous Parliament. If that's how it turns out, Alaba will arguably have succeeded in bringing about the supermajority they promised, albeit with the Greens playing a crucial role as well. Pro-indie parties in combination are projected to have 80 seats, which amounts to 62% of the 129 seats in the Parliament. This article is by Jodie Harrison. Recorded from the Herald on the 28th of April 2021. From the sports section, Scotland to kick off 2022 Six Nations with Murrayfield clash against England by Stuart Bathgate. Scotland will begin their Six Nations campaign next year with a home game against England. They will then play in Wales and at home to France before finishing off with two away fixtures against Italy and Ireland. All their matches will take place on Saturdays with kick-off times yet to be announced. Gregor Townsend's team, who also begin this year's championship with a Calcutta Cup fixture, but at Twickenham, will welcome England to Murrayfield on Saturday 5th of February. Ireland will be at home to Wales on the same afternoon, while France will meet Italy in the Stade de France on Sunday the 6th. In all, three games will take place on a Sunday, while one, Wales's game against France in round 4, will be on a Friday. The pattern of fixtures next year will follow a now familiar pattern. The first two rounds are on successive weekends, as are the last two, while round three will be preceded and followed by a fallow week. Although the present state of the pandemic means it is too early to be sure how full the stadiums will be, the tournament's organisers are hopeful that, after no spectators were allowed in this year, the 2022 Championship will see something akin to business as usual. We look forward to next year's championship with hopefully a return to normality when we can welcome fans back in stadia and bring that unrivaled Guinness Six Nations atmosphere into sitting rooms, pubs and rugby clubs all over the world, said Ben Morrill, the Six Nations Chief Executive. Six Nations Championship 2022 
Saturday, 5th of February, Ireland versus Wales, Scotland versus England. Sunday the 6th, France versus Italy. Saturday the 12th, Wales versus Scotland, France versus Ireland. Sunday the 13th, Italy versus England. Saturday the 26th, Scotland versus France, England versus Wales. Sunday the 27th, Ireland versus Italy. Friday the 11th of March, Wales versus France. Saturday 12th, Italy versus Scotland, England versus Ireland. Saturday the 19th, Wales versus Ireland, Ireland versus Scotland, France versus England. That article was by Stuart Bathgate. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 29th of April 2021. Arras, the forgotten bloodiest battle in Scottish history, remembered the new documentary by Caitlin Hutchison. Scotland's role in the battles of the Great War cost the country more than 105,000 men, and all around 750,000 Scottish men fought in World War I. There were many reasons for signing up. Soldiers may have been motivated by patriotism, others drawn by the promise of a military wage, while some would have been carried along by peer pressure. But in the volunteering period between 1914 and early 1916, Scotland provided a disproportionate number of soldiers. A new documentary from Scottish filmmakers is now looking at one of the most important battles in Scotland's history, which also became infamous as one of the bloodiest, ending the lives of an estimated 18,000 Scots. The Battle of Arras took place in a small French town in April 1917 and was hugely significant, not just for the thousands of Scottish soldiers involved, but as a strategic turning point on the Western Front. Filmed in Scotland and France, Glasgow-based Upnix Studios' latest documentary speaks to world experts to uncover the story of this largely forgotten battle and of the men who paid the ultimate price. Presenter and historian Fergus Sutherland told the Herald just why the Battle of Arras was particularly significant for Scots. Going by the numbers, it's the biggest battle in Scottish history, he explained. More Scots were gathered together to fight than at any other battle in history. Thousands of men from a total of 44 Scottish battalions, as well as seven Canadian battalions with Scottish heritage were present, marking the first time that all of the Scottish regiments had fought together. Mr Sutherland added that a third of the 159,000 Allied casualties were Scottish, making it a huge event in Scotland's national history, despite it being very rarely talked about. We rightly hear about the Somme, Passchendaele, Lewis, Mons, all horrific battles which are scarred onto our collective memory, but Arras, not so much, he said. Her documentary tries to go some way to correcting that gap in our history. The Scots, who were very much in the front line of the first assault on the morning of 9th April, remained so throughout the ensuing five weeks. One of the most remarkable stories told in the documentary is of how underground tunnels were used to bypass barbed wire and the killing fields of no man's land. Over 20,000 men lived hidden for weeks underneath the shattered city of Arras in what became an incredible subterranean town still accessible for visitors today. Mr Sutherland said when they appeared out of the blizzard on that first morning and attacked the German soldiers in their own trenches, it must have been an incredible shock and it was incredibly effective leading to the greatest breakthrough in the Western Front up to that date. The 60-minute long documentary will also feature some of the latest GFX techniques used to rebuild the town of Arras and explore what it was like for the Scots who fought in the town. However, it's the story of Lieutenant Donald McIntosh that will always stick with the historian. 
Already knew of his father from having researched the history of the Western Infirmary, where he was medical superintendent and he was a major figure in its history, he explained. So finding out that one of the 25 men who received the Victoria Cross for their bravery during the Battle of Arras was actually his son, brought the story very close to home to someone who's lived in the West End of Glasgow for most of my life. As one of our expert contributors says in the film, there were probably many acts of bravery that we would never hear about. But even then, Donald McIntosh's story stands out. He led his men in an assault on German lines that Mr Sutherland described as nothing more than a suicide mission. He walked into a wall of machine gun bullets and was only brought down when after being wounded for a third time, until then continuing to lead fearlessly from the front. When you stand on the sunken road and walk into the broad, flat fields that they marched across, the full reality of what happened and how desperate their situation was is physically immediately clear. There was nowhere to hide or to take cover, explained Mr Sutherland. No wonder nearly every man in that attack was killed or injured. They had no chance at all, which makes the achievement of Mackintosh and his men of reaching the enemy line so remarkable, if ultimately of no lasting effect. In the documentary, the filmmakers visit the grave of Donald Mackintosh in one of the many local war cemeteries, which Sutherland described as a moment of great truth and privilege. To kneel beside the grave and know what this 21-year-old Glaswegian had done and had given, that's not something you forget. The documentary Arras, Scotland's Forgotten Battle, has been picked up by the American distribution company Seven Palms and will be available for international release soon by Caitlin Hutchison. The Herald, Thursday the 29th of April 2021. News. Sir Tom Hunter. Now is not the time for another independence referendum. This article is by Gemma Ryder. Sir Tom Hunter has warned that now is not the time to be gambling on another independence referendum. The millionaire businessman said Scotland needs bold, ambitious industrial policies that could not be offered in the short term if Scotland loses access to funding from Westminster. The SNP have said they would want focus on getting through the pandemic before another referendum and subsequent negotiations in the event of a win for the independence side would presumably take several years, with Scotland still able to access the annual block grant. Sir Tom's comments come after First Minister Nicola Sturgeon and her party have been criticised in the last week over a lack of economic modelling for an independent Scotland, despite voters being asked to vote for pro-separation parties to force another poll on the matter next week. Writing in the Daily Record, Sir Tom said, We need bold, ambitious industrial policies. In my opinion, we need to wake up and realise now is not the time to be gambling on an independence referendum. If the block grant goes in the midst of recovery from the pandemic, how do we pay for any of this in the short to medium term and all the politicians' promises? Not one party has offered a credible economic strategy to deliver the economic growth we need to offer all our citizens the opportunity to thrive. The entrepreneur and philanthropist also highlighted the care review commissioned by the First Minister in 2016 and reporting last year as a symbol of what could be done when public services shift their focus to the customer's needs. Sir Tom said, instead of inward analysis, talking to vested interests and policy makers 
Fiona Duncan, who chaired that review, did something utterly compelling. She asked the customer. Of more than 5,000 interviews carried out by the review team, more than half were with care-experienced young people, from toddlers to adults and everything in between. Their stories were compelling, heartbreaking and ultimately inspiring. The system was broken, but it could be fixed. Design the system for the customer. Don't try to fit the customer to a dysfunctional system. Learning lessons from the care review, Sir Tom said the Scottish Government could reform tired old systems to work for the people of Scotland, although he did not say which systems were in need of reform. When furlough disappears, a wall of unemployment is coming our way and we need to act, think and work together to build back better, he said. To do so, we need to capture the stories of innovation and embrace them, change our tired systems and model those changes, as the care review did on the customer's needs, not the systems. Every individual we come across in the public sector is, I believe, up for change. They simply need empowered to make that change. Tomorrow is another day. Let's use it to build back better and give every young person in Scotland the brilliant chance they deserve. We should because we all care. Deputy First Minister John Swinney said, The First Minister and the SNP's focus is fixed on getting Scotland through the pandemic and into recovery. And the first steps we will take if re-elected to tackle COVID, to help the health service to recovery, to support young people into jobs, help workers facing unemployment to retrain, and to help children and families are set out in the plan we have published today for the first 100 days of a new SNP government. The Care Review has been a groundbreaking piece of work and our manifesto promises to do the same on the economy in delivering a national care service and in tackling climate change. Only today we have committed to a cross-party steering group on COVID recovery. This article is by Gemma Ryder. Friday the 30th of April 2021, the Herald Sports Section. David Cox, suicide taunt. Stenhouse Muir player takes leave of absence during probe. Stenhouse Muir have confirmed their player who allegedly taunted Albion Rovers David Cox over his suicide attempt will take a leave of absence during the investigation. Cox retired after explaining on a Facebook Live that Jonathan Tiffany had made comments while he sat on the bench during the pair's League 2 clash. He said, The second half is just starting. Albion Rovers and Stenhouse Muir. I have left the stadium. I wasn't playing tonight. I was on the bench. One of the boys on the Steny team. We were having a wee bit of a two and fro on the bench and they had a wee go at my mental health. Told me I should have done it right the first time. So I promised myself the next time it happened I'd walk off the pitch. Obviously I wasn't playing. I am done with football completely. Some folk might not think it's a big deal. I'm fed up listening to it. I don't get paid enough for it and and they put me on the park, I'd probably have broken the boy's legs deliberately.
I tried to speak to the referees about it. They didn't want to know because they didn't hear it. So, same we're talking about all the time. We talk about racism and the personal issues that get brought up in football. But if it's not heard by officials or whatever, there's nothing they can do about it. So I'm going to do something about it. And for me, it's leaving the game. I'm done with it. It wasn't of the reasons I was going back to football. I did it in January, but I'm done with it. Because I either keep playing and I'm going to battle somebody on the park, which will result in me being the bad one. Once he called me out on it, he knew what he said and tried to deny it. Nothing gets done about it. Nothing is going to get done about it. Football is full of with the things that they say and it's going to continue to happen. So I am done hanging the boots up for good. I've just walked away there. I'm off in the middle of the game. I'm not doing it. Cox's club rovers threw their weight behind the striker and told how they would fully back their man. Now Steny have revealed Tiffany will be the subject of an SPFL investigation, saying in a statement, the club can confirm that we have asked the Scottish FA compliance officer to investigate the incident that happened last night during our game against Albion Rovers, and the SPFL has been informed. Serious allegations have been made, and they must be fully and robustly investigated. Following discussions with the Stenhouse Muir player involved, he will take a leave of absence until the investigation is concluded. Friday the 30th of April 2021, the Herald Sports Section. Stephen Gerrard addresses Rangers transfer links and details behind-the-scenes efforts to strengthen Ibrook's squad. Stephen Gerrard has refused to be drawn on Rangers transfer links with Fashion Sakala and Joey Veerman as he looks to bolster his title-winning squad next term. The champions have been credited with an interest in striker Sakala, who is currently with Belgian pro league outfit KV Ustend and Hiravin striker Veerman in recent weeks. Rangers will return to the Champions League qualifiers later this year after wrapping up their Premiership title in a decade and preparations are already well underway for the new season. And Gerrard is determined to continue working quietly and efficiently behind the scenes to ensure he adds the required strength and depth to his ranks once again this summer. Gerard said, there were a couple of names a week before and a week before that. If there's anything to say in terms of in and outs, I will be the first to tell you. We are tracking certain individuals to try and make the group stronger when the window opens. I don't think it's the right time to mention individual names or targets that we're looking at. We never wait, we're always working in the background. We obviously coach the team on the training pitch and that's a priority 
to prepare the team from game to game. But a lot of extra work, a lot of extra hours, even at home and during international breaks and the off-season is put in. It never stops in terms of my dialogue with Ross Wilson and the scouts in trying to identify areas of the team that might make us stronger and give us a better chance of being successful going forward. It's not a case of waiting until the final whistle against Aberdeen and then starting talking about the next window. I think you can see from the arrival of Scott Wright and Jack Simpson that we're always trying to be ahead of the game and on the front foot. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 30th of April 2021. Arts and Entertainments. Paperback Reviews. Books by Barbara Ehrenreich, Bonnie Sue Hitchcock and Ace Atkins. By Alistair Mabbitt. Had I Known. Barbara Ehrenreich. Granta. £10.99. Academic, activist, journalist Barbara Ehrenreich has packed a lot into her 79 years and this essay collection is the perfect introduction to her writings. Spanning four decades, it kicks off with arguably her greatest hit, Nickel and Dimed, recounting her exploration of the low-wage economy. But these insightful pieces cover a wide range of subjects, including health, religion, science, class, employment, new men, her own experience of breast cancer and her thoughts on hashtag MeToo. Raised by Democrat atheist parents, Erin Reich has always been fearless and forthright in her views and any subject she's tackling is informed by her awareness of social injustice, her concern for the poor and disenfranchised, always close to the surface. Polemical and passionate, acerbic but introspective, these essays are unsettlingly prescient. Erin Reich has always been able to see which way the wind is blowing, foreseeing much of the world we see today, so even the oldest feels relevant. Everyone dies famous in a small town. Bonnie Sue Hitchcock, Faber, £7.99. Hitchcock's second young adult book takes the form of a novel composed of interlinked stories set in 1995 concerning nine teenagers spread across several states, from the author's home state of Alaska to Colorado. Sharing some characters and locations, these stories have varied themes, but they all lead back, in some way, to two current events. A raging forest fire and the disappearance of a young girl. It's a book about small towns and what it's like for the young people who live in them. At that phase in their lives when experiences are felt most intensely and the need for validation is at its height, Hitchcock's characters live in small communities where everyone supposedly knows each other's business, but in truth they're having to struggle secretly with troubling, often traumatic problems. Each of these keenly observed vignettes sows the seeds of a resolution which ties them all together. Someone to watch over me. Ace Atkins. No exit. £9.99. An author with 27 books to his name, Atkins was chosen by Robert B. Parker's estate to continue Parker's series about Boston-based private detective Spencer. To say that this instalment was inspired by the Jeffrey Epstein case would be a considerable understatement. It brings back a character from a previous novel, Matty Sullivan, who is given a central role as Spencer's protégé when she is approached by a 15-year-old girl who is lured to a private club and offered $500 to massage a rich and powerful older man. Spencer finds dozens more girls with similar tales to tell, pointing to the existence of an international sex trafficking ring. Pacey engrossing with a palpable sense of danger and flurries of action, 
even taking into account a plot ripped from the headlines. This long-running series, brackets 48 books in, with this being Atkins' ninth, close brackets, seems to have an astonishing amount of life left in it. By Alistair Mabbitt, Herald Scotland, recorded on Friday 30th of April 2021. Arts and Entertainments TV Preview Black Mirror actress Imogen Danes on her new show Intergalactic by Herald Magazine Fast forward 150 years into the future and the vision of Earth that humans are faced with is in equal parts intriguing and terrifying, or so decrees new sci-fi series Intergalactic. With police swapping cars for spacecraft as they patrol the skies and prisoners being transported away from Earth to far-flung colonies, the prospect is undeniably bleak. And yet it's an intrinsic part of the allure of Sky One's latest space-based show. Black Mirror actress Imogen Danes, who plays convicted cyber-hacker Verona, says, You've got the common world, which is the Earth-based government, which is masquerading as a democracy but is, in fact, a dictatorship. And I think anyone living in America would just chime with that immediately. You've got these pseudo-liberal humanists at the top, which are actually keeping everyone down any way that they can, anyone who's just doing what they need to do to get by. And I think there are so many resonances now all across the world with governments that behave in exactly that way. A tale of conflict, injustice and survival, Intergalactic tells the story of young police officer and galactic pilot Ash Harper, played by a discovery of witches star Savannah Stain. Stripped of her career following a wrongful conviction for treason, Ash is separated from her mother, played by Bendit like Beckham's Perminder Nagra, and exiled to a distant prison colony. But with a mutiny afoot on board the spacecraft transporting the convicts, Ash finds herself in an entirely unexpected course. Intergalactic's Conception Created by secret diary of a call girl writer Julie Geary, Intergalactic is a project four years in the making. Executive producer Iona Vrolik says she was very interested in telling a story about a group of misfits who need to find their own way. She was increasingly seeing people being polarised politically and she wanted to have a group of characters who, at the beginning, are outlaws and perhaps have done things that are difficult to empathise with, but actually through them show that actually there's another way. If people come together and work together towards an aim, then they can achieve great things. So, Intergalactic was definitely a subliminal comment on the polarisation of our politics. Starring Poldark's Eleanor Tomlinson, alongside Misfits actor Craig Parkinson, Sex Education's Sharon Duncan Brewster, and This Is England star Thomas Turgoose, Intergalactic's lineup is quite literally out of this world. The calibre of the crew. Julie has worked before with Kieran Hawkes, who was the director and executive producer of the show, says Rolick and so they have a very special and unique creative partnership. There's a shorthand there, and he knows how to shoot her scripts. He's a brilliant director, a brilliant visual storyteller. It's a history that extends far beyond the partnership of Geary and Ripper Street director Hawks, as Nagra45 goes on to explain. As soon as I heard about Kieran Hawks, the director I've worked with before in Fortitude, I was like, OK, I have a really good feeling about this, recalls Nagra. And then, of course, I started reading. It's very rare when you start seeing the words of a character, you can see yourself doing it. It's rare when that happens. So enthused was Nagra by the project, in fact, that she deemed the small matter of international travel something of a triviality. My commute was not short, laughs the actor. I had to travel from Los Angeles to Manchester, so every few weeks I was doing that trip. It was just well written, and I had more to do than just, you know, come in and give some exposition. That's how hungry I was. 
the importance of diversity and representation, setting itself apart from sci-fi dramas of the past, Intergalactic's character-driven storyline places diversity at the fore, unleashing an empowered black female lead in the form of Stain. The series also boasts a racially diverse and extensively female-led cast. It's a fresh take on a tried and tested format, challenging the parameters of traditional dramas as Stain goes on to reflect. I've always prayed on getting a leading sci-fi role in Thuzi's Stain. After seeing other black women actually do it, after seeing your Tessa Thompsons, after seeing Lupita in Black Panther, after seeing black women in own sci-fi, which I think is just the greatest thing. I think it's really important just to see yourself, so that we can understand ourselves better, so that we can feel reflected, so that we can feel validated. We can see ourselves existing, and not just always in traumatic situations that are always so connected to our race, or our sexuality, or whatever it is. And I think that's what's interesting about this world, is that these characters' problems aren't their blackness, or, you know, their background, or this, that, or the other. But it's just kind of refreshing to see us have a load of other problems. It's a stand seconded by fellow actress Nagra. It's relatable, she says. Yes, we are diverse women in the show, but it's also a woman who is a mother. It's a young woman like Savannah. There are so many other levels and layers to what's going on. They're not just your two-dimensional characters that sometimes can pop up on screen. The devil's in the detail. What sets Intergalactic apart from other sci-fi adventures is, in part, the series casting decisions, according to Stain. I think that was great for me was the casting director, Carmel Cochran. She explains, she herself is Asian and black, and I'm Asian and black, so she actually saw me and she was like, what's your mix? I'm South African, Indian, Jamaican, and she was like, I actually want to find parents that actually look like you and are of your heritage rather than just getting a black dad or a white mom, which is what people might just think of when they see me. It's this detail-orientated approach that, according to Stain, lends itself to the show's authenticity. They ask for pictures of my actual parents, and then, when you see Parminder, and you see my mom in real life, they've really reflected that, and it's not something I've seen before, so that was really cool for me. Intergalactic, Sky One, and streaming service Now TV from Friday. By Herald Magazine. The Herald, Tuesday the 4th of May, 2021. News. Hundreds seek help from Stirling Medical Cannabis Clinic in first week. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. Scotland's first legalised cannabis clinic has been endorsed by one of the SNP's most senior members after it welcomed hundreds of patients in its first week of opening. In March 2021, it was announced Scotland was to get its first medical cannabis clinic after receiving approval from regulators. Sapphire Medical Clinic, based in Stirling, is the first medical cannabis clinic to be approved by Healthcare Improvement Scotland HIS, and will provide a safe access to medical cannabis for patients in Scotland. In its very first week, the clinic welcomed more than 500 new patients across Scotland via remote telemedicine consultations. However, once COVID restrictions are lifted, the clinic will also offer Scottish patients face-to-face appointments in the city of Stirling. Stirling MP Alan Smith welcomed the news, saying he was delighted that the clinic would become the first and only registered clinic to prescribe medical cannabis. He said the Stirling-based clinic, which is accessible from the surrounding areas, 
provides patients who suffer from conditions such as chronic pain and anxiety the opportunity to access this treatment. Growing the evidence base is vital to further improve patient access to medical cannabis and having met the team at Sapphire, I am pleased to see that Scottish patients will now be contributing to their comprehensive National Registry database. I am confident that together we can bring about greater access to medical cannabis and really change lives. For patients such as 42-year-old Andrew from Edinburgh, the service offers a chance to become weaned from addictive opioid medications. I am grateful to now have the opportunity to access medical cannabis via Sapphire Medical Clinics for my persistent pain condition, he explained. The service has been very smooth and I have been kept informed throughout the process. I hope to be able to use less of the opioid medication I have been stuck with for many years. Earlier this year, Sapphire Medical commissioned a poll around the UK population's understanding of CBD through YouGov. In Scotland, 23% of the population said the main barrier to medical cannabis access is the lack of certainty if it is legal over two years after it was made legal. Meanwhile, a total of 9% of the population is taking over-the-counter or prescribed CBD products and a staggering 85% of Scots said they didn't know that medical cannabis is less expensive than over-the-counter wellness CBD. Dr. Mikael Sodergren, Managing Director and Academic Lead at Sapphire Medical, said the statistics clearly highlight the need for further education around medicinal cannabis, illustrated by the fact that almost a quarter of the population are still unaware that medical cannabis is legal. To bridge this education chasm, Sapphire Medical established the UK Medical Cannabis Registry, which is a comprehensive prospective registry designed to collate outcomes of medical cannabis therapy. The aim of the registry is to expand our understanding of medical cannabis as a treatment in the UK by collecting and analysing clinical data and I am thrilled that Scottish patients will be contributing to the advancement of this. This article is by Caitlin Hutchison. The Herald, Tuesday the 4th of May 2021 News. SNP set for knife-edge majority, but support has declined, new poll finds. This article is by Alistair Grant. The SNP is on course for a knife-edge majority at the Holyrood election on Thursday, a new poll has found. But Opinion's latest poll for Sky News reveals support for the SNP has slightly declined, while the independence question is split 50-50, once undecides are removed. Nicola Sturgeon's favourability ratings have also fallen, but she remains the most popular leader with a net approval rating of plus 17, down from plus 23 in opinion's poll last month. If the SNP win an overall majority, 42% of Scots want a second referendum within five years, down seven points since last month. 
Meanwhile, the proportion wanting it within two years has dropped five points to 28%. In the constituency vote, the SNP is down two points since the last opinion poll in April to 51%. Both the Conservatives and Labour have made gains, 23% for the Conservatives, which is plus two, and 19% for Labour, which is plus one. In the regional vote, SNP is down to 41%, which is minus three, while the Tories take 23% of the vote share, plus one, and Labour sees no change with 17%. The Greens are on 8%, the Lib Dems 6%, and Alex Salmon's Alaba party 3%. Using a uniform swing calculator, a crude method to predict the number of seats using the percentage share of the vote, this would see the SNP winning 67 seats, giving the party a majority. But the margins are tight. The Tories would take 29 seats, Labour 20, the Greens 8 and the Lib Dems 5. Opinium's latest voting intention reveals little appetite for a possible coalition. The only situation which more people think would be good for Scotland than bad for Scotland is an SNP majority, 46% good for Scotland versus 41% bad for Scotland. This is followed by an SNP Green majority, 37% good for Scotland versus 45% bad for Scotland. Any coalition involving the Alaba party is very badly received by voters, with just 14% thinking an SNP Alaba coalition would be good for Scotland, and 17% thinking one also including the Greens would be good for Scotland. Meanwhile, 65% and 62% respectively think those outcomes would be bad for Scotland. Elsewhere, Scottish Labour leader Anas Sarwar has continued to see a boost in his numbers with a net favourability up plus 13 from plus 10 in April and minus 3 in March. Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross also seems to have recovered a little, net of minus 26 up from minus 31 but Alex Salmond languishes with a net approval rating of minus 70. Opinion research carried out an online survey of 1,015 Scottish adults aged 16 or over between April the 28th and May the 3rd. Chris Curtis, Senior Research Manager at Opinion, said, The campaign finishes much where it started with razor-thin margins set to decide whether Nicola Sturgeon can govern alone or will need the backing of other pro-independence parties. But despite that fact, our latest polling shows the Scottish public are not necessarily keen on another Scottish independence referendum. Even if she does win a majority, just 43% think there should be one in the next five years compared to 50% who think there shouldn't. We have also seen Labour voters harden in their view over the campaign, with just 24% willing to back one in those circumstances. Regardless, Sturgeon will argue that a good result this week gives her the mandate 
to put the question back to the Scottish people, demonstrating just how important this week's vote will be for the future of the Union. This article is by Alistair Grant. Recorded from the Herald on the 4th of May 2021. From the Sports section. Hebs opened discussions with English Premier League side over potential partnership by Aidan MacDonald. Hibernian have reportedly held talks with Brighton and Hove Albion about the prospect of a working relationship between the two clubs. It is claimed the Edinburgh outfit and the Seasiders could be entering an official link-up that could see the Hibbies take talent on loan from the Premier League club. A report in the Daily Record claims communications between both teams are still at a very early stage. The cross-border plan could also work the other way round, with young players from Hibs getting the chance to move down south or train at Brighton's facilities. There are also reportedly other areas that would see both clubs swapping data and ideas. Teams in England have had to change the way they scout and develop talent ever since Britain left the European Union. The new work permit criteria makes it harder for UK-based teams to sign players from EU countries. This has led to a need for investment in British talent and this official link-up could lead to the Seagulls getting priority access to top prospects at the Hibs Academy. That article was by Aidan MacDonald. Recorded from the Herald on the 4th of May 2021. From the Sports section. St Mirren denied UEFA licence as Paisley Club faced sweat over European windfall by Aidan MacDonald. St Mirren could lose out on millions after they were refused a licence to play in next year's UEFA Europa and Conference League. The Paisley Club would secure European football for next term if they win this month's Scottish Cup. If they were to win the tournament, the Buddies would find themselves in the final playoff of the second tier competition and have the backup of the third tier tournament until at least Christmas. However, as first reported in the Scottish Sun, they have not met the latest grading by the SFA to play football on the continent. The club has said they will appeal the decision, but they will have to meet the strict governance and financial criteria of UEFA. The report also states that officials of the club are locked in talks with those in charge at Hamden to try and resolve the situation. Livingston, who could potentially still find themselves in the Conference League, have also been denied a place at this time. That article was by Aidan MacDonald. From the Held Scotland on Monday 4th May 2021, from the Voices section. Latest poll spells fortune for SNP. An article by Mark Diffley. With a single day of campaigning left before Scotland votes, today's poll by opinion makes for good reading for the SNP and the Conservatives, but will be seen as disappointing for Labour after some recent uptick in support. This election is less about who wins and more about the margin of victory and who comes second. Throughout the campaign, Nicola Sturgeon has made much of her being the only serious contender for First Minister, while opposition leaders have conceded that their focus is on securing second place. Every poll conducted during the campaign, and for many months prior, has pointed to an SNP victory. Less certain is whether the party can repeat its feat of 2011 by securing the 65 seats needed for an overall majority thus giving the party the strongest possible mandate 
to push for a second independence referendum in the next few years. This poll indicates that may still happen, suggesting an overall majority, albeit by just two seats, with the party tallying 67. Interestingly, it also suggests that the SNP may achieve that milestone by virtue of the constituency part of the ballot alone, gaining 66 of the 73 seats available in that part of the election. Ironically, of course, this means that the emergence of new parties to try and encourage voters to use their regional list vote more tactically may prove to be moot if the SNP can govern as a majority administration. But even if that does not happen, this poll, putting Alba on 3% on the regional list ballot, suggests that the party of the former First Minister, Alex Salmond, is not poised to make any significant breakthrough in terms of the independence supermajority it craves. At 51% on the constituency ballot and 41% on the regional list, this poll follows the pattern of surveys from last weekend which suggests an uptick in SNP support, following some more modest polls for the party, where its vote share fell to around 45% on the constituency and 35% on the regional list, a result which would leave them short of a majority. The SNP mantra in the closing stages of the campaign is to reinforce its message to voters about the leadership of Nicola Sturgeon and it is true that her approval ratings significantly outperform those of the other party leaders. Across all voters, 57% approve of the job she is doing, including one in four voters who would vote no to independence, a key cohort she would need to persuade in the event of a second independence referendum. Positive personal ratings do not always lead to uplifts in a party's fortunes. However, and one of the big stories of the campaign has been the rave reviews and good favourability ratings for Labour leader Anna Sawa, without a significant uptick in support for his party. One or two recent polls have suggested that Labour could push the Tories close for second place, but more recent readings suggest that this is less likely and that once again Labour could find a breakthrough unachievable in an era of constitutional politics where the links between views on independence and support for political parties is stronger than it has ever been. There is a huge amount at stake on Thursday and few certainties, but if this poll is reflected in the final results, then the SNP will be very content. This article was by Mark Diffley, a pollster who is the founder and director of the Diffley Partnership. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.